Our text this morning is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans 1, 17, the message this morning is about God's righteousness, the very heart of God's gospel. Romans 1, verse 17, to catch the context, I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. Thus, or in this manner, my eagerness, Paul's gospel passion, to preach the gospel to you also, those in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power unto salvation to everyone who believes, to Jew first and also to Gentile, for in it God's righteousness is being revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous by faith, will live. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his word. Dear God, thank you for the righteousness by which sinners are made right with you. And we pray as we consider this gospel righteousness this morning, that the Holy Spirit will shine light on your word and glorify your great name because you're worthy. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Remember we saw last time that the gospel is God's power to salvation. It's God's power, omnipotence, in action to rescue believing sinners from every branch of the human race. That's what the gospel does. And why does the gospel do what it does? Paul says, the gospel does what it does because the gospel is what it is. The content of the gospel is the ground of its effectiveness. It is God's power in action to transform sinners and rescue them from sin because in it is revealed God's righteousness. The heart and core of the gospel, the active ingredient in the gospel, is the righteousness of God. So this is not something that we should take lightly. It's not something we can afford to be wrong about. And at the very outset, I know you're supposed to end with application. Let's start with that. At the very outset, this has a practical application for us. If the heart, the core, the active ingredient in the gospel that gives it its power is God's righteousness, if that's what it uncovers, that enables it to do what it does, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn this. It teaches us that any ministry that professes to be a gospel or evangelical ministry must focus on this. What's the gospel all about? This teaches us how to evaluate any ministry. 
It's not about God's secret of happiness. It's not about success in this world. For in it is revealed God's secret of success. For in it is revealed the way of health, wealth, and prosperity. For in it is revealed the secret of... No. So any professing ministry that's all about success and wealth and prosperity and happiness has missed the boat. Because that's not what it's ultimately about. It's ultimately about God's righteousness. That's what the focus of biblical, evangelical ministry is, and that's how you can evaluate whether any ministry that professes to be Christian and gospel and evangelical is on track or whether it has missed the boat. Now, let me qualify this. In general... Those that believe in Christ live happier lives than those that don't. I'm not arguing that. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say anything about happiness or success or wealth or any of that. No, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the heart of the gospel. It's not ultimately about human happiness. It's ultimately about God's righteousness. For in it is revealed... God's righteousness. That's what gives it its power. The gospel does what it does because the gospel is what it is. Now, what I want to say about God's righteousness today, three things. The concept, the production of it, and the reception of it. The Bible features these three things. It features the conception, production, and reception of God's righteousness. Right, first of all, let's look at the conception of it. What is God's righteousness? What is it? Well, if you're looking at righteousness, first of all, it's an English word. So we're allowed, now, ultimately, we don't get our, our, our ideas about biblical themes from looking them up in the dictionary. I understand that. But we're allowed to look up the meaning of English words in an English dictionary. And when you look up the Oxford and Webster dictionaries, this is what it says. Righteous means virtuous or law-abiding. And Webster says, acting in accord with law, free from guilt. Now, does that fit with the biblical concept? Actually, it does. The idea is the idea of virtue. And always, righteousness is connected somehow with law or a standard. It involves conformity to a law or a standard or a code of conduct or a requirement. And so this virtue involves both blamelessness or innocence, which is not doing what the code forbids, and also it involves some kind of merit or credit, which is doing what the code requires. So this virtue has kind of like two sides to it. There's a blamelessness or innocent side, which means, well, I didn't break the law. I'm an innocent man. And then there's a virtue or credit or merit side, which says, I did everything that was required. So I have merit. So righteousness is the virtue connected with some kind of standard or code of conduct. 
And it has these two aspects to it, an innocence aspect and a virtue or merit aspect. Does that make sense? Yes? No? You with me so far? Now, the Bible says that there are different ways then, if that's true, then you could be righteous according to all these different codes and evaluations, and etc., which the Bible says is true. In Luke 18, verse 9, and he spoke this parable to certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and set all others at naught. People can be righteous in their own eyes. They, these people have their own code and their own standard of conduct. They had their own laws. They made them up. They had their own laws of requirement. And in their own estimation, they were totally blameless. They had done everything that they were supposed to do. They had merit. And they never did anything that they weren't supposed to do. They were innocent. They were blameless. They had merit. They were righteous. And they were righteous in their own eyes according to their own code and their own standard of behavior. And nobody else was righteous in their eyes. They set all others at naught because other people were not innocent because they broke some of these man-made rules that these people had. And they never kept all the requirements that these people made up. So it's possible to make up your own code, your own standard, your own law, and to be righteous in your own eyes because you've done everything you required and you haven't done anything that you forbid. So you're innocent and you have merit in your own eyes, and such were the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So the righteousness of God, first of all, doesn't have to do with a man-made code. And it doesn't have to do with people being righteous in their own eyes. Whatever it is, it's God's code and God's eyes. It's righteousness according to God's requirement and according to God's assessment. It's in God's eyes and in accord with what God requires. Not people's eyes and what people make up as rules. That's the first thing you learn about it. And then the next thing, Romans chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, but if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who visits with wrath? I speak after the manner of men, God forbid. For then how will God judge the world? Now God is a righteous judge. And he judges righteously. And in one sense, the Bible clearly says that his righteousness has to do with his justice as a judge, his integrity of character. His virtue of conscientiousness and integrity by which he judges the world. And this is in stark contrast with the fact that by nature sinners do not have righteousness. And the fact that we don't have any righteousness commends God's righteousness, whatever it is. It stands in stark contrast with the lack of virtue, the demerit, the guilt, the opposite of blamelessness 
that characterizes human beings in the state of sin. Those in the state of sin are not righteous, but are hell-deserving. They have no virtue or credit in God's eyes, and they are not blameless. There is none righteous, no, not one. And our very lack of integrity by nature in the state of sin, the fact that we are hell-deserving sinners, commends. It shows us the glory and beauty and the need of God's righteousness. And then one other text to show us the general concept, and that's Romans 10 and verse 3. Speaking of the Jews, in Romans 10:3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to God's righteousness. Being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, wait a minute. The Jewish people were not ignorant of God's general character trait of justice, conscientiousness, integrity. They were not ignorant of the fact that God was a righteous judge. So the righteousness of God that Paul has in view here, which is the heart of the gospel, and which is associated with sinners who have no righteousness being made right with God, that righteousness does not refer in this context to God's general attribute of integrity or justice as a judge. But it has something, he has something far more specific in view. And whatever it is, it's something of which the Jews were ignorant. And it's something that stands in stark contrast with us establishing our own integrity or righteousness. That is, conformity to a standard of behavior. It's in stark contrast with that. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, they would not be subject to the righteousness of God. There's another way. So it's in other words, sometimes the Bible uses God's righteousness to refer to God's general attribute of integrity or justness. That's not what it's referring to in this context. Sometimes also, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you're not going into the kingdom of heaven. Now there, he's talking about the gospel virtue associated with sanctification. He's talking about the evangelical righteousness that marks sanctification and holiness, gospel holiness in the Christian life. And later on in a sermon, he actually refers to that as God's righteousness in Matthew 6.33 when he says, but first seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And so in one sense, God's righteousness in scripture refers to his general attribute of integrity and justice. In another sense, it refers to gospel holiness, the righteousness, the evangelical virtue that God produces in all of his people. When he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And that evangelical righteousness associated with sanctification is pleasing to God because God produces it through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. But Paul's not talking about that either. He's not talking about God's general attribute of integrity. And he's not talking about 
the, the evangelical virtue associated with sanctification that has to do with God's children and God's work of producing gospel holiness in every true believer and child of God. He's not talking about that either. But he's talking about a very specific and special aspect of God's virtue. God's righteousness is virtue that is merit from doing what's required and blamelessness not doing what's forbidden in God's eyes, which God discloses in the gospel, which God both requires and provides, by which hell-deserving sinners who have no righteousness or virtue of their own get right with God. I was not talking about God's general attribute of integrity or gospel holiness and the evangelical virtue associated with it. But it's speaking about that virtue of God revealed in the gospel, which God discloses in the gospel, which God requires and which God provides by which hell-deserving sinners who have no righteousness of their own get right with God. Does that make sense? Now then, if that's what it is in general, then how is it produced? So Professor Mary says in his commentary, and this is a paraphrase, he says, in this context, the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel is this. It's all the righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require, end quote. Now that sounds clever, right? But it's virtue in God's eyes, revealed in the gospel. God is its standard. God provides it. God gives it. And it's the virtue by which hell-deserving sinners get right with him. Does that make sense as to what it is? All right, now, how is that righteousness produced? And how is that righteousness received? We looked at the concept of it. Now consider with me its production and its reception. Its production is connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. The production of God's righteousness by which sinners get right with God is predicted in redemptive history. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, we read this. Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely, and will execute justice and righteousness in the land, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, I wonder who is that? Who do you think Jeremiah is talking about? The heir of David, who's going to reign and save God's people. Who is that, you think? Jesus Christ. Right. And this is his name by which he will be called. Jehovah our righteousness. That's the name of Jesus. Jehovah, our righteousness. Jehovah is our righteousness. 
He is Jehovah. He is the supreme being incarnate. And he is our righteousness. The righteousness that God requires, the righteousness that God provides is produced in history through the person and work of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Whatever this righteousness is, its production in history is connected with the coming of Christ, the person and work of Christ, and he is called Jehovah our righteousness. The righteousness that God requires, the righteousness that God provides, the righteousness by which hell-deserving sinners are made right with God, that righteousness, its production in history, is connected with the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah our righteousness. That makes sense? So it's predicted. But then, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And this is part of the reason I wanted to read this. Because Romans 3, 21 and 22 is an exposition of our text. Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness, the very righteousness, which is the active ingredient in the gospel, it stands manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We just saw how it was witnessed in the law and the prophets. We just saw one example of how the coming of Christ and the production of God's righteousness in conjunction with the coming of Christ is predicted by Jeremiah, being attested by the law and the prophets. But now it stands manifested. That is, it has been produced in history. It has been completed, and it stands in a state, present state, of permanent manifestation, disclosure in history. It's on display. It has been completed. It has been produced in conjunction with the coming of Messiah and the person and work of Jesus Christ, and now forever after, it stands permanently on display. That's what Paul says. So God's righteousness is not still being produced. But God's righteousness being produced in conjunction with the person and work of Jesus the Messiah has been completed and now is permanently on display. That's literally what that text says. Romans 5.19 Here it is. For as through the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many, all his posterity, were made sinners because of the representative solidarity between Adam and his posterity, when he ate, we ate. Even so, through the obedience of the one, will the many be made righteous. The obedience of God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, is the ground. It is the cause. It is the source of the merit and the blamelessness in God's eyes, which is his righteousness. All the righteousness, which his righteousness requires him to require for sinners to be right with him. All of it is produced through the obedience of Jesus. The obedience of Jesus to God's revealed will, 
which involves his complete perfect obedience to God's moral law and his obedience to God's commandment regarding the cross. And in that obedience, he provides everything that God's justice requires him to require that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. He requires perfect conformity to his moral law and in Jesus Christ he provides it. He requires atonement, propitiation, sacrifice to be made for every sin done by his people and in Jesus Christ's obedience he provides it. He provides everything in the obedience of Christ that his righteousness requires him to require in order for sinners who deserve to go to hell and have no virtue of their own to be right with him. The righteousness of God is the virtue in God's eyes that comes from the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. The perfect obedience of his sinless life and the perfect obedience of his atoning sacrificial death. That's everything that God requires for hell-deserving sinners to be right with him. The production of God's righteousness in history takes place through the life of Jesus, his obedience to God, his sinless obedience in life and in death. And again, this is underscored in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So the production of God's righteousness is predicted. It's completed and manifested. It's founded and grounded in Christ's perfect conformity to God's standard, revealed will, the blamelessness of Christ in God's eyes, and the virtue of Christ, the merit of Christ in God's eyes. And then it's imputed. It's not only predicted and completed and manifested and founded in Christ's obedience, it's also imputed. That's how you know what it is. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says, Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become God's righteousness in him. That we might become God's righteousness? Well, look at the contrast. This is what you could consider double imputation. First of all, in redemptive history, in conjunction with making atonement for sin, he made him to be sin. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that he turned Jesus into something morally evil. The one that says he made him to be sin, it means that he imputed to Jesus all the liability or guilt of all the sin of all of his people. When it says he made him to be sin, it means that he transferred to his record all the liability and all the guilt of all the sin of all of his posterity, of all who believe in him, of all who are in him, all that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world, the many that are made righteous through him. He imputed to him all the liability to punishment of all the sins 
of all in him. He made him to be sin. Doesn't mean that he turned his soul from being morally good into being morally evil and turned Jesus into a wicked human being. That's not what it means. It means that he transferred to Jesus, imputed to Jesus, all the guilt and liability of all the sins of all his people. And then, with all the liability and all the guilt of all that sin, credited or demerited to him, he punished him. And he poured out his wrath upon him until that wrath is completely pacified and that justice totally satisfied. The price paid. He made him to be sin. But now look, that's what happened in his life history. 2,000 years ago, in his suffering and death, and the shedding of his blood on the cross. But now, well, look at this. This had a purpose. In order that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That we would become the virtue in God's eyes. That comes from the perfect obedience, the blamelessness of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means that as the guilt of our sin was imputed to him 2,000 years ago, so also the merit and the virtue of his obedience is imputed to us when we believe we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the virtue in God's eyes that comes from the obedience of Jesus in his life and in his death. Just like the liability and guilt of our sin was imputed to him, so when we believe the virtue of his merit and blamelessness is imputed to us the moment we believe. Just like our sin's guilt was imputed to him, so the merit and virtue and blamelessness of his obedience is imputed to us. Does that make sense? When we believe. The righteousness of God is that virtue which God requires and that virtue which God provides and that virtue which is produced through the obedience of Christ and by which sinners who deserve to go to hell are made right with God. That's what it is. That's what's revealed in the gospel. That's why the gospel is God's power to save. And transform the world. Which brings me then to my final point, which is also underscored in the text. So we looked at the general conception of God's righteousness, that it is virtue. That is merit and blamelessness in God's eyes according to God's standard, by which sinners who deserve to go to hell get right with him, and which is revealed in the gospel. And we've looked at its production, that this righteousness of God now stands manifested once and for all, and it was produced 
through the life of Jesus the Messiah. And it comes from his perfect obedience in life and in death. And the virtue of that obedience is everything that any sinner needs to be right with God. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. So how do we receive God's righteousness? How is it received? How do sinners receive it? Romans 1.17, back to our text. For in it, the gospel, is revealed God's righteousness, the virtue in God's eyes which God requires, which God provides, by which sinners get right with him, that comes from the obedience of Jesus, from faith to faith. And Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, the virtue that stems from Christ's obedience, through faith it is received unto all them that believe. It is bestowed by God and received by sinners when they believe. Romans 5.17 For if by the trespass of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more shall they that receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, the abundance of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one. God gives this righteousness to sinners who don't deserve it, who haven't merited it as a gift when they believe. And Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9, Yes, truly, and I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuge, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having anything to do with my own personal obedience to God's revealed will, but a righteousness which God produces. God incarnate produced it here on earth 2,000 years ago. A righteousness which God provides. A righteousness which God gives freely as a gift. A righteousness which we receive from God, though we haven't merited it, in one way and only one way. And that one way and only way is faith. And it's the same for Jews, and it's the same for Gentiles, and there's no other way to receive God's righteousness, to receive the free gift of the virtue that comes from what Jesus did. There's no other way to receive it except by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone is the means by which sinners receive and by which God gives the gift of the virtue that comes from the obedience of Jesus. And it's that virtue by which sinners who deserve to go to hell get right with God. There's no other way. And the gospel reveals that virtue. It's the gospel, Paul said, concerning his son. And what did his son do? His son provides the righteousness, the virtue that every sinner needs to get right with God. 
And how does he provide it? He provides it through his obedience in his life and in his death. And how does God give it? He gives it freely as a gift to everyone who believes. And what does faith do? Faith credits God's word in the gospel to be true. That Jesus is not just a mere man, but that he is Lord of all. And that he wasn't a megalomaniac and a rebel rouser and a rebel like his enemy said, but that instead he lived an absolutely perfect life without sin. And that that life is all the righteousness and virtue that you need to be accepted with God. And that he died on the cross not because he was a criminal who received the due reward of his crimes, but he died on the cross as an atonement, to a, as a sacrifice to pay the price of sin. And that atonement is all the atonement. And it's all the propitiation. It's all the satisfaction of justice and pacifying of God's wrath that any sinner needs to be pardoned by God. And Jesus Christ provides everything that any sinner everywhere on earth, anywhere on earth, in any generation, and every generation needs to be right with God. And that's what the gospel declares. And how is it received? How is this righteousness from God this virtue from God received, it is received by faith, by crediting God's word to be true, and by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whosoever will call on him. Faith credits what God's word says to be true. And faith calls upon and relies upon Jesus, the living Jesus revealed in the gospel and him alone and his virtue alone to rescue you from your sin. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus? God's way of salvation. I never said it was easy, but it's really very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon him, and God will rescue you from all your sins. And to those of us that do have faith, what do we say to these things? Blessed be God for his love and for his grace and for his mercy and for his goodness. This is, this is nothing people ever would have conceived of this literally in a million or even a billion years. We never would have made up anything like this. This is the truth because it comes from the Bible. The Bible tells us this story. The gospel tells us this story. This is the hope of mankind. This is the power to change the world. And that power is the righteousness of God. That is the virtue in God's eyes that comes from the perfect obedience of Jesus, which God provides, which God requires, and which God gives us a free gift and which is received by faith alone. This is the hope of the world, folks. This is the power to change the world. It's the power to change lives, transform societies, glorify God. This is it. The active ingredient, the focus of the gospel, God's righteousness. What's the concept? Virtue, according to God's standard. It's what God's righteousness requires him to require for sinners to be right with him. How is it produced? Through the obedience of Jesus. How is it received? By means of faith.
Simple? Clear? What do we say to these things? Praise be to God and blessed be his name. Let us pray.